On May 2, 1987, Tim Raines, the left fielder for the Montreal Expos, woke up not having faced Major League Pitching for seven months. Over the years, labor mayhem in baseball has caused a lot of heartache. Two lengthy strikes, the throwing of one World Series and the cancellation of another, and way back in 1890, the formation of an entirely new league. But arguably, none of those things were quite as ridiculous as the rule that resulted in the best player in baseball being banned from playing the sport through no fault of his own for the first month of the 1987 season. But Tim Raines didn't dwell on the unfairness of his situation. Instead, in his first game of the season, having had no spring training, no baseball activity at all except one simulated game against low-level minor leaguers, despite all that, Reigns took the first competitive pitch he'd seen in half a year, a fastball from David Cohn, and smacked it off the right field wall for a triple. And he promptly drives it into right, and Strawberry going over, it's against the wall. Tim Raines to second, and he's going to go for three. Strawberry throw, and the National League batting champion has come back with a vengeance. i got to tell you, spring training is very important. you got to go to spring training, or you can't be in shape, man. <laughs> you miss spring training, you're in deep trouble. He missed the home run by just a couple of feet. You could see he was going to jump on the first pitch. It was a strike. He thought it was a home run. He sees it hit the fence, so he says, well, I better shift gears here, and he's got himself a three-base hit. So an electrifying at-bat for Tim Raines to return after being out for over a month, contractual problems with Montreal, and he tripled. But Tim Raines wasn't done yet. He was only getting started. Raines' performance on May 2nd, 1987, has become the stuff of legend. By the time his day was done, Raines had not only played the greatest game of his career, but he'd unwittingly kindled a lifelong romance between two people he'd never even met. Hold it, hold it. What is this? Are you trying to trick me? Where's the sports? Is this a kissing book? Wait, just wait. That's coming up on Fade Away. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant Sunday to you, wherever you may be. That slam to deep left field. This ball's out of here. A home run for Tim Raines. Connie Gibbon. And when the team folded in 2004, no one was more devastated than UP. With the Expo gone, UP found himself unable to find employment. Hello, and welcome to Fade Away, the baseball history podcast. I'm your host, Eric Enders. Today's episode, Tim Raines, a love story, in which we take a look at the life and career of baseball's newest Hall of Famer, and the charming role he played in the lives of two complete strangers. 
Growing up, Tim Raines was so small that even his own father bet against him. Tim's dad once made a bet with a friend that Tim's older, bigger brother, Ned, would have a better baseball career than Tim did. Make no mistake, though, Tim was a great athlete as a youngster. All the Raines boys were. Five brothers, the sons of a construction worker, all five sharing a single bedroom growing up in Sanford, Florida, the same small town where citizens had once threatened to lynch Jackie Robinson for taking the field with white players. Like Robinson, young Tim was a spectacular athlete, starring in four different high school sports. He set school records in the long jump and 100-yard dash. He rushed for 10.5 yards per carry as a tailback. He had more than 100 scholarship offers to play football, including one from the University of Florida. But at 5'8", Reigns realized his future on the gridiron was limited. I realized that the further I went in football, the more my height was going to be a factor, he said. So he signed with the Montreal Expos instead. Reigns took the minor leagues by storm, winning Minor League Player of the Year in 1980. Defensively, though, he was only a fair second baseman, with small hands prone to bobbling the ball. There was no way I could catch a ground ball hit right at me, he said. I guess that's how I got the nickname Rock. They say it's because of my hands, but I like to think it's more because I'm short and stocky. You know, built like a little rock. At 5'8", Reigns was shorter than Tiny Archibald or Brooke Shields, but he was built like a dynamo weighing 172 pounds with 7.8% body fat and the flexibility of a dancer. His legs were short, thick, and muscular. He was ready for the big leagues, but Montreal already had a second baseman. What they needed was an outfielder. So just like that, Tim Raines became a left fielder, despite never having played the position as a pro. On opening day 1981, there he was, playing left field and batting leadoff for the Expos. His impact was immediate. After the first month, Reigns was batting 373 with 20 steals in 19 games. In nine of those 19 games, he had two or more hits. Including his previous time as a September call-up, Reigns was now 27 for 27 in stolen base attempts for his career, a record streak for the start of a career. Three of the steals came on pitchouts. Sports Illustrated called him, quote, a one-man deluge. It was one of the most impressive starts in baseball history. But as would happen to Reigns so often, it was overshadowed by another rookie season that was even more spectacular, that of Fernando Valenzuela. Unlike Valenzuela, Reigns didn't inspire a mania. He didn't roll his eyes toward the heavens or lasso teammates in the dugout. He didn't play in the entertainment capital of the world, and he didn't have an entire nation living vicariously through his exploits. He just played baseball, calmly, efficiently, and very, very well. The best game of Reigns' rookie season came on May 1st against Valenzuela's Dodgers, who had become the Expo's nemesis. L.A. had kept Montreal out of the playoffs in 1980 by beating them 11 out of 12 games. But in this game, Reigns singled, walked twice, stole three bases, played five emergency innings at second base after the second baseman got hurt, and to cap things off, hit a walk-off home run in the bottom of the 13th. It was the first homer of his career. But the Dodgers, alas, had the last laugh. The next day, L.A.'s rookie catcher, Mike Sosha, gunned down Reigns' stealing to end his incredible stolen base streak. At season's end, Valenzuela would beat out Reigns for Rookie of the Year. The Dodgers ended Montreal's season in a dramatic playoff game known as Blue Monday, with L.A.'s Rick Monday hitting a soul-crushing homer in the ninth. Sixth. 
Après avoir retiré les deux premiers frappeurs, Rogers devait négocier avec Rick Monday. Ce dernier brisa l'égalité et le cœur des partisans avec un circuit au champ centre. Reigns' numbers as a rookie were jaw-dropping. A 391 on base percentage with 71 steals in 82 attempts. But fans outside Montreal had forgotten about him before the season was even over. Reigns and the rest of the Expos were left to rue the fact that one of the greatest teams in franchise history had failed to make it to the World Series. A young statistician named Bill James called them without a doubt the best team in baseball today. We did have the best team in baseball that year, Reigns later said. We would have kicked the Yankees' ass. If you never had the opportunity to go to an Expos game in Montreal, believe me when I tell you that the atmosphere was unlike that of any American ballpark. It was really a tremendous, and I mean tremendous, venue, Rick Monday said. It was like the World's Fair and the Olympics and the World Series all at once. People were dancing and hollering, bundled up and having a good time. Even a crowd of 20,000 would cheer far louder than a crowd of 50,000 would at Yankee Stadium. The fans delighted in stomping their feet on the aluminum bleachers, creating inventive cheers for the players, and generally just having way more fun than any other baseball crowd I've ever been a part of. Even the scoreboard operator got into the action. Every time an opposing pitcher would make an unsuccessful pickoff throw, the scoreboard would show an animation of a chicken accompanied by a loud squawking sound, much to the delight of the fans. Writer Jonah Carey remembers counting 13 chickens in a row one time when Reigns was on base. We'd all compete to see who could get the most chickens, Reigns said. I always won. En 1981, un autre marchand de vitesse se joint aux expos, le voltigeur Tim Reigns, champion frappeur au niveau 3. La recrue ne déçoit pas les partisans. Il réussit 27 vols de but consécutifs avant d'être retiré pour la première fois le 2 mai. Il brise le record d'équipe détenu par son prédécesseur, le Floor. Reigns obtient son 50e larcin lors du 55e match de l'équipe et il est en voie de battre tous les records. La seule chose qui peut arrêter Reigns est la grève déclenchée par les joueurs. Expos fans loved to have a good time, and so did the players. And that, in the end, was the team's downfall having too much of a good time. was rampant throughout baseball in the early 80s, and Expos players like Rodney Scott, Bill Lee, and Ellis Valentine sometimes went on all-night coke benders the night before a game. They even had a semi-hidden alcove underneath the bleachers at Stade Olympique, where they'd go to smoke pot after batting practice. (laughs) 
Management worried that this behavior would rub off on the younger, more impressionable players, and their fears proved well-founded when Tim Raines, in his second Major League season, developed a serious cocaine habit. Raines would snort lines in the stadium parking lot, in the restroom on team flights, even, on occasion, in the clubhouse. Although he had a good year in 1982, it did affect his play. He later said, I could feel the effects. I was juggling the ball in the outfield. I was misreading pitches. Team president John McHale said he would miss practice or not be on time. That was just not Tim Raines. Raines tried to keep his habit a secret, and for the most part, it worked. He sort of kept that problem hit, his father said. I'd ask him what the matter was, and he'd just say he was tired, not feeling good. Things blew up on June 29, 1982, when Raines failed to show up for a game, and the Expo sent the team doctor to his apartment. The doc discovered that Reigns' habit was raging out of control. He'd spent $40,000 on cocaine in the nine months since he started using. The day after the season ended, Reigns entered a rehab hospital in Orange County, where he stayed a month. I realized how much my career and my family meant to me, he said. I was in danger of losing both. Reigns managed to kick his nine-month habit, and he's now been clean for 34 and a half years. I feel I've gained from the experience, he said in 1984. I'd rather it never occurred, but now that it has, it's a blessing it happened when I was so young. I was just a kid from a small town. It was an experience I tried, but I couldn't control it. It's a load off my back, and now that it's over, it's over. Reigns kept clean in part by making a point of emulating Andre Dawson, his soft-spoken teammate who was one of the most respected players in the game. Reigns viewed Dawson, who was five years older, as a big brother or even a father figure, and he latched on. In 1983, he became Dawson's mini-me, following the hawk wherever he went, studying his actions, and listening carefully on the rare occasions when Dawson spoke. 
Rains even moved into the same apartment complex where Dawson lived, on an aptly named island in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. If Rains couldn't stay clean on Nunn's Island, he probably couldn't stay clean anywhere. I always felt that if I hung around him enough, some of it would rub off on me, Rains said. Later that year, Rains' wife gave birth to their second son. They named him Andre. Fadeaway is sponsored today by Audible. For listeners of Fadeaway, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Just visit their website at audibletrial.com fadeaway. I love listening to audiobooks, and Audible is the best place to get them, with over 180,000 titles to choose from and an easy-to-use app that makes it simple to listen on your smartphone, tablet, or desktop computer. There's only a few weeks before Pitchers and Catchers report for spring training, so why not listen to a great baseball book to put you in the mood? One title Fadeaway listeners might enjoy is The Game, Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers, by John Pessa, narrated by Jeremy Arthur. You can get this book, or any other book of your choice, for free within seconds by visiting audibletrial.com fadeaway. That's audibletrial.com fadeaway. With a new outlook on life, Tim Raines utterly dominated the National League in 1983. He stole 90 bases and scored 133 runs, the most in the league in 13 years. He became the first player since Ty Cobb to steal 70 bases and drive in 70 runs in the same season. It was the start of a five-year run in which Reigns, through diligence and hard work, established himself as arguably the best player in the game. From 1983 through 1987, he led all National League players in on-base percentage, steals, and wins above replacement. A natural right-handed hitter, he worked so hard at switch hitting that he eventually became stronger from the left side than he was from the right. He tried to mimic George Brett's batting stance, so much so that he kept a picture of Brett taped up in his locker. He carried around a book called The Art of Hitting 300, written by Brett's hitting coach, Charlie Lau. Before games, Reigns would get himself ready by listening to tapes of speeches by Martin Luther King on his Walkman. They get me away from baseball, back to reality, he said. Then, when I come out, I'm ready to play. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice in the process of gaining our rightful place. We must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. It was during these years that Reigns perfected the art of base running. He was a terrific instinctive base runner, but he worked hard at it too, studying pitchers and catchers in their release times. Reigns ran the 100-yard dash in 9.7 seconds, which is fast, but plenty of other ballplayers have been faster. Bo Jackson and Willie Davis each ran it in 9.5, but neither of them was ever able to learn enough of the nuances to become an elite base stealer. Reigns, by contrast, was savvy enough to understand that stealing bases isn't about raw speed. It's more about timing, short burst quickness, and knowing the other team's personnel. As his teammate Bill Lee put it, a cheetah is fast, Reigns is quick. 
Reigns arranged his feet in the base path exactly as if he were preparing to start a 100-yard dash. He pushed off for second with his powerful left leg, and usually slid into the bag feet first, saving his head first slides for close plays where some sleight of hand might be required. When Tim times everything right, he reaches second in 3.2 to 3.3 seconds, one of his coaches said, so only a combination of the best pitcher and catcher can hope to get him. They didn't get him often, as Reigns became the first player in history to steal 70 bases five years in a row. The next year, he made it six in a row. By the time he retired, Tim Raines had reached base 3,977 times, more than Tony Gwynn. He also had become arguably the greatest base runner the game has ever seen. Ricky Henderson stole more bases, but Raines stole them better. He's one of three men in modern history with 800 steals, and his success rate was far higher than the other two, Henderson and Lou Brock. In fact, Raines' 85% stolen base rate is the best in history among players with 400 attempts. In 1984, Pete Rose said, Tim Raines is the best player in the National League. Mike Schmidt is a tremendous player, and so are Dale Murphy and Andre Dawson. But Rock can beat you in more ways than any other player in the league, and he has the perfect disposition for a great player. He has fun. He's just a happy guy. I've never seen him in a bad mood. That's another thing about Tim Raines. You'll rarely encounter anyone who doesn't comment on what an easygoing, down-to-earth guy he is. He'd make funny faces posing with fans on photo day. He'd playfully spar with Yuppie, the Expo's bright orange mascot of indeterminate species. He has a keen sense of showmanship, the writer Steve Wolf noted. He plays with such unbridled exuberance that he can make a dull game exciting, particularly when he is dancing off first base preparing to plunder second. In 1986, Peter Gammons wrote an article for Sports Illustrated proclaiming Henderson and Reigns as the two greatest leadoff hitters of all time. It was a bold statement, considering Henderson and Reigns were just 27 and 26 years old, respectively. But Gammons' assertion was true then and remains true today. Tim Reigns, by any measurement, is the second greatest leadoff man of all time. You'd think that alone would have gotten him into the Hall of Fame on the first ballot, but as Bill James has pointed out, Reigns had the misfortune to play exactly the same position at exactly the same time as the greatest leadoff man ever. Henderson had the magazine covers, the Yankees hoopla, the gold chains around his neck custom engraved with his stolen base totals. Reigns, on the other hand, played his best years in the shadows, content with the adoration of one of baseball's smallest markets. By 1987, though, Reigns' patience with Expo's ownership was growing thin. Two years earlier, he'd been forced to sit through an exhausting four-and-a-half-hour arbitration hearing, as team management detailed all the reasons why he wasn't worth the raise he was asking for. Reigns countered by hiring Bill James to testify on his behalf. Today, James is revered as one of the most significant figures in the game's history, but back then, he was only a few years removed from working the night shift at a pork and beans factory a small-time writer whose work was mostly self-published and whose readership was a small circle of baseball nerds and intellectuals. But with James testifying on his side, the arbitrator gave Reigns what was then the largest arbitration award in history, $1.2 million. Even at that, Reigns was still wildly underpaid. He was one of the two or three best players in baseball, but only the 18th best paid. Which brings us to collusion. While it's largely forgotten today, 
The collusion scandal of 1985 through 88 is arguably the most embarrassing stain on the game's history. It's not as sexy as seven players getting together to throw the World Series, but the collusion scandal towers over the Black Sox, both in terms of its financial impact and the sheer scope of the conspiracy. Baseball's owners, so fond of free market principles in their other businesses, found they could pocket a ton of extra cash by rigging the market in baseball. Even Commissioner Faye Vincent, an employee of the owners, mind you, called it the most egregious breaking of trust in baseball history. I'll try to put this in a nutshell as best I can. At their annual meetings after the 1985 season, baseball owners decided to engage in a secret and illegal conspiracy to keep players' salaries down. They did this essentially by refusing to participate in free agency. Simply put, owners agreed to stop poaching each other's players. Nobody was allowed to sign a free agent unless that player's team had explicitly said they didn't want him anymore. With nobody bidding on them, even the most desirable free agents would be forced to re-sign with their old teams at a fraction of their market value. For three consecutive years, the best and the brightest of baseball's free agents mysteriously found themselves with no legitimate offers. Jack Morris, the decade's winningest pitcher, wanted to pitch for the Yankees. George Steinbrenner said thanks, but no thanks. Dave Rigetti, owner of the single-season save record, wanted to sign with San Francisco. The Giants told him to take a hike. All across baseball, star free agents mysteriously found themselves getting no interest except for low-ball offers from their own teams. Peter Gammons wrote in January 1987, In the last two years, not one player has received an offer from another team until his former team was no longer interested. The owners eventually got caught, and since the price-fixing scheme was a blatant violation of baseball's labor agreement, they were forced to pay $280 million in restitution to the affected players. But that wouldn't happen until years later. In the moment, the players were simply stuck, with nowhere to go. Andre Dawson, Tim Raines' good friend, not only didn't get any offers, but had to endure the spectacle of Expo's management waging war through the media trying to drive down Dawson's price by saying publicly that his iffy knees made him a bad investment. Dawson became so frustrated that he decided he had to leave Montreal at any price. He sent the Chicago Cubs a signed contract with the salary field left blank, telling them to fill in whatever number they wanted. The Cubs happily obliged, writing in the rapacious figure of $500,000. Most players felt their only choice was to cave in to collusion, as Dawson had. But one player refused to play the owner's game. Tim Raines. Early in the 86-87 offseason, Montreal offered Raines a three-year contract worth $1.6 million a year, which would be a great salary for you or me, but was well below market value for a player of Raines' caliber. So he turned it down. But then, as the offseason plotted along, Reigns found the free agent market was as dry as the bones in a Georgia O'Keeffe painting. The only offer he got was a bargain basement offer from San Diego, but the Padres, doing their part to uphold the conspiracy, soon called him back and retracted it. Misunderstood 
Perhaps I played a fool. I shall be looking for a new place to stay, apart from most of our friends far away. So the only team willing to sign Tim Raines was the Expos. But the problem was, the deadline to re-sign had already passed. Under the bizarre rules in place at the time, a player had only until early January to re-sign with his own team. After that point, he was prohibited from re-signing until May 1st. So between early January and early May, a free agent could sign with any team except his own. For a sport that paid so much lip service to loyalty and continuity, it was a strange and nonsensical rule. The one team that was willing to sign Tim Raines was the one team that wasn't allowed to. Not only could Raines not sign, he couldn't even practice anywhere, since officially he was not an employee of any major league club. During his purgatory, he kept in shape by working out with a high school team in Florida. With the regular season well underway, and Raines' free agency hopes having been squashed like a bug, he was forced to crawl back to the Expos, hat in hand. At midnight on May 1st, Reigns and his agents sat down with team management and spent four hours hammering out a deal worth $5 million over three years. It was a Pyrrhic victory for Reigns, being worth only $200,000 more than the contract he'd turned down months earlier. Later that day, he played in a simulated game with some rookie leaguers before catching a flight to LaGuardia. He would make his season debut against the Mets the next day. Which brings us back to the start of this episode. May 2nd, 1987, Shea Stadium, Game of the Week. I was 10 years old at the time, and like millions of others, I remember tuning in to NBC that Saturday afternoon to see what Reigns would do in his comeback, and to hear what Vince Scully would say about it. Well, here he is, Tim Reigns. He played that game in Class A. They played a six-inning game where he led off every inning. He went four for six, and he had three stolen bases, and that's the only baseball he's really played. First at bat, he triples on the first real pitch he's seen in months. Next time up, Reigns walked and stole second, starting an Expos rally. In the seventh, he got a single batting left-handed, and in the ninth, he got one batting right-handed, sparking a two-run rally that sent the game into extra innings. Finally, in the top of the tenth, Reigns came up with the bases loaded against Jesse Orozco, the relief ace who had closed out the World Series the year before. And with Tim Raines coming up, Raines has two singles, a triple, a walk, a stolen base. He has scored twice, and the only time they got him was a dazzling play by Tim Tuffle. What a day he's had, and now he has a chance to really take things in charge. Raines and then Wally. Against the left-handed Orozco, Reigns turned around to bat right-handed, his weaker side of the plate. Orozco threw him a fastball where he could hit it, and Reigns hit it into the picnic area in left field for a game-winning grand slam. A grand slam that made him a legend. High drive into deep left field. McReynolds watching. Would you believe a grand slam for Tim Reigns? to be one of the most incredible stories of the year in any sport. The first day back. That has to be one of those stories if you wrote it for television they said that's too corny. It'll never work. Can you imagine that? And boy, I'm telling you. 
I had a lot of dreams about this day, he said afterward, but this wasn't one of them. Even Reigns' opponents felt a sense of wonderment at his achievement. That was an incredible thing we just saw, the Mets' Wally Backman said. Steve Wolf wrote in Sports Illustrated, In the course of one afternoon, Tim Raines staked a claim as the best player in the National League, served notice that the Montreal Expos are no longer to be made fun of, set the concept of spring training back about a hundred years, and showed baseball how silly it was to keep him out of the lineup for four weeks. It was the greatest day of Tim Raines' career. The next day, he came back to Shea Stadium and hit another game-winning home run. And now we've reached the point in our story where three unstoppable forces converge. The greatness of Tim Raines, the magic of baseball reference, and the wonders of true love. 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 You heard him? True love is the greatest thing in the world, except for a nice MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich. You probably know that BaseballReference.com is the king of all baseball statistics websites. Back in its early days, before advertising brought in much revenue, the site made much of its money from page sponsorships. For two bucks or two thousand, depending on the page traffic, fans could sponsor the page of their favorite player which came with the privilege of writing a sentence or two that would appear atop the page. These sentences could be silly, or sarcastic, or sentimental, and over the years, the site's users turned them into something of an art form. Somebody once sponsored Bronson Arroyo's page using a quote from Hemingway. Felix Hernandez's page was sponsored by a Mariner's blog, which added the tagline, He's ours, and you can't have him. Some Mets fans sponsored Chase Utley's page just to taunt him. Yankees fans did the same thing with the 1918 Red Sox page, before the curse was broken. Outfielder Marvin Bernard's page was sponsored by somebody calling themselves a high fastball. The comment underneath said, I love this guy. He couldn't hit me with a tree trunk. But the best sponsorship of all was the one on Tim Raines' page. The sponsor identified himself simply as Amy's husband, and the message was as follows. Our first baseball game together was Rock's first game back from the 87 collusion. Four for five, Grand Slam in the 10th to beat the Mets. She had a hero for life, and a year later we were married. He remains her favorite, she remains mine. It was a perfect message, sweet, succinct, and endearing. For years, whenever I've looked up Tim Raines' stats, I've seen this message at the top of the page and wondered who this mysterious couple were. In my mind, they became mythical figures, like Tristan and Isolde, Hepburn and Tracy, Wesley and Princess Buttercup. So in the process of researching this episode, I tried to find out who they were. I asked some of my baseball friends, many of whom were familiar with the Rain sponsorship and loved it, but nobody knew who posted it. Finally, I posted a public missive where the smartest baseball nerds I know hang out. 
the Facebook group for fans of the great podcast, Effectively Wild. It was basically a shot in the dark, but only an hour or two after I posted my query. Yeah, well, I'm Rob Maines. I am a writer for Baseball Prospectus and also Banished to the Pen. And I am Amy's husband of the Tim Raines Baseball Reference Page Sponsorship. Amy was been my wife for 28 years, and I met through a mutual friend, old girlfriend of mine from college, and we were, we were friendly, but I lived in New York. She lived in Boston. After the 1986 World Series, which was wonderful for me because I got to go to the seventh game of the World Series, traumatic for her and everybody else who lived in Boston. Uh, after that series, she sent me, uh, this is in October of 86, sent me kind of a long letter because this was 1986, more emails, about her general topic was how could any decent human being ever like the New York Mets and how terrible they were and all this sort of stuff. And I was working late as it happens on Halloween and I called her to try to get her and she wasn't home and I left her a really long voicemail kind of refuting her points but in a good-natured way. And um, that message, uh, I'd always been kind of interested in her, and that message, I guess, was sufficiently charming or whatever that she became interested in me, and we started dating after that. But if you're too drunk to drunk, and the music is right, she might let you stay, but just for the And she was visiting me in May of 87, partly just to visit, but also partly May 1st, which was Friday that year, was her birthday. And I had partial season tickets still to the Mets, and one of my partial season ticket plans I shared with a buddy was Saturday games, and I had the ticket for the next game, Saturday, May 2nd at Shea, which happened to be Tim Raines first game of the season because this was the big collusion year so we were going to this Mets game she was there as a rabid Mets hater and this was Tim Raines first game back and I told her the story of this and I'm, I'm looking at my scorecard here his first bat of the game now this he couldn't play in the minors he didn't have no he had no spring training this was the guy's first live pitching he saw first pitch of the year that he saw, he hit a triple. And then in the top of the ninth, with the Mets ahead 6-4, to four, he hit a routine of kind of slow roll. I still remember this play. Kind of slow roller to short, and he beat it out. It was a ground ball that would have been an out with, I would guess, 95% of major league hitters. It wasn't one of those that, you know, it was so slow, you wonder where the guy's going to make it. This is a kind of routine grounder maybe a little bit slower than that, but Reigns flew down the line. And, you know, this team down, he um, beat it out for a hit, naturally came around to score. Uh, next batter, uh, who had singled in the third, Tamala came around to score, so it was a 6-6 game, going to the top of the tenth. So the Expos squandered a lead, wouldn't quit, and have come back to tie it up in the ninth. Spearheaded by Tim Reigns. 
It was Reigns' ground ball to Pedrique. He wouldn't quit and legged it out for a hit. Otherwise, they're done. They're in the clubhouse now with a loss. And uh, the Mets brought on Jesse Orozco at that point was their closer, who didn't have his good stuff that day. He allowed three singles in a row uh, to load the bases. And then Reigns came up, and Reigns takes a 1-0 pitch and hits in the left field seat. And it was silent at Shea Stadium because everyone was shocked by this. And Amy's sitting next to me, and as the ball is going, she's, uh, she gasped, goes, she goes, <gasps> and then she said, what just happened? I said, he just hit a grand slam home run. And so she very quietly, because he didn't want to get killed by a bunch of Mets fans, said, yay. And anyway, after that, he became her favorite baseball player. And P.S., he had an amazing year that year. He missed the first month of the season. I was just looking this up. Nonetheless, he led the league in runs. He hit 330, 429, 526. And as a base dealer, he was 50 and 5 for the year. So he was amazing. So she became this big Tim Raines fan. A couple of years we had Tim Raines baseball cards at the top of our Christmas tree. And then a few years later, I can't remember when I started doing this, I started using Baseball Reference. You know, it's this cool website. You can look stuff up. And I noticed you could sponsor pages on it. And um, I thought this would be kind of a nice idea because once you're married after about the first two or three years, you kind of start scratching your heads about uh, anniversary presents. So one year for our anniversary, I sponsored the Tim Raines page. I actually did it a few days ahead of time. And I sent her an email. And since I've already dated myself by saying I was an adult to see a baseball game in 1987, I also date myself by quoting a Jim Croce song that I sent her. Um, and I sent her, check out this link, and I said, this is an old song. I said, uh, every time I try to tell you, the words just come out wrong. So I have to say I love you through a dedication on a baseball-oriented website. And that that was uh, when I started sponsoring the page, and I renewed it every year since. But then baseball references started to kind of phase out the sponsorships, and so that, that sponsorship may become history just like uh you know my scorecard from the game in 87 can you imagine that and boy i'm telling you look at those montreal expos are really not only high fives they're on the bench they're just waiting for him and they're bowing to him and everything else what a way to break in so tim Raines has a walk two singles a triple a grand slam home run and the stolen base somebody's gonna get hurt getting stuck in the gate leaving the park they are just going in droves that was really an iconic game this was a one of the more memorable games in baseball history because of what Reigns did so just being able to to, to witness it live, that was fantastic. But then this was the first baseball game that I took my, you know, my girlfriend and you know a year later my wife to, and so it was going to be a memorable game, regardless, just because it's first baseball game we went to together, and the fact that it turned out to be such a dramatic game, um, you know, him coming back after the collusion. Notwithstanding, that was still a really exciting ball game. The Expos came from behind, and then, you know, a grand slam to win it in the 10th against the Met closer. 
that was a really exciting ball game to have seen. And then the fact that you know, because this player who had not seen a pitch in the majors until that day, or in the minors for that matter, hadn't seen a professional pitch, dominated the play was sort of the icing on the cake, and that he became the you know her hero was you know just just made made it even more special. I have only one more question for you, which is. Um, do you th- think that Amy would be interested in talking to me about this? Um, well, given that she's been, been walking past me, um, you know, every now and then, hang on. Hey, Ames? You don't want to say anything? <laughs> she said, oh, no. She's not a super public person. Okay. I can tell you, she's looking here smiling. <laughs> you don't want to just say, say hi or... This is uh, this is Eric. He's interviewing me about uh, the paid sponsorship. Nah, I'm getting. I'm getting. No, no. This is. It's not her thing. Okay, fair enough. Well, sorry. Uh, give her my best wishes anyway. And um, could I have you actually read the page sponsorship out loud? Oh. Um, Do you have it handy yeah. or? What it says is Amy's husband sponsors this page. And then it says, our first baseball game together was Rock's first game back from the 87th collusion. Four for five, Grand Slam in the 10th to beat the Mets. She had a hero for life, and a year later, we were married. He remains her favorite. She remains mine. When it rains and storms and thunders, I feel romantically And it makes me wonder Where is the one for me? This episode of Fade Away was written, produced, and edited by Eric Enders. Special thanks to our interview guest, Rob Maines, and thanks also to the authors whose published work was helpful in researching today's show, especially Peter Gammons and Jonah Carey. Nobody else Each day is kind of the same Oh, why is it so that I'm always alone when it rains? I'd love to find one who thinks that it's fun to read Tolstoy and Steinbeck and Twain. Is that much to ask? I like to do things like that when it rains. I love to listen to the wind blow. Maybe put up a cup of coffee or tea Put on a record, watch a movie Maybe cook up a meal For my echo, my shadow in me But alone here I sit Not too blue, just a bit Maybe I'll sit at the piano and play It always sounds better In inclement weather And I'm all alone when it rains You can visit our website at fadeawaypodcast.com, where you'll find the episode box score, which contains the full list of sources and music credits for today's show, as well as a picture of Rob Maines' original scorecard from Tim Raines' Big Day. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at fadeawaypod. If you enjoy the podcast, please help us out by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. 
Thanks for listening. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Rick Monday ever since he pulled that flag up. Always liked his style. And every now and again, I wake up in a cold sweat thinking about that son of a bitch. But alone here I sit, not too blue, just a bit. Maybe I'll sit at the piano and play. It always sounds better in inclement weather. And I'm all alone when it rains.